Uh, what time is it? Oh, my head. What happened? Oh, that's right. The Kick-Ass Oregon History Christmas Party 2014 Extravagant. Fuck. I hate Christmas. Okay, let's see. What happened? There was a lot of Burnside bourbon. Ugh, very smooth, but oh god, there was a lot of it. Somebody said something about Oz West and name redacted. Punched him in the mouth. Name redacted. Or made the inevitable August Erickson joke and name redacted. Kicked him in the. Oh, oh my god, my head hurts. Let's see. By 7:30, it was pretty much all over. Name redacted. Was in the middle of the room, challenging all comers to arm wrestle. Oh, God, my shoulder's still sore. Uh, is there anything worse than the office Christmas party? I mean, really? Well, I guess there was that one time. Yeah, as far as Christmas parties go, that was pretty shitty. What are you doing in my bed? It is December 24th, 1894, and the entire town of Silver Lake, Oregon, is celebrating Christmas Eve together. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at ORHistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kink Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. This year's Christmas special takes place in a charming little Oregon village named Silver Lake, snuggled in beautiful Lake County. In 1894, 120 years ago, 
Silver Lake had a population of about 150 residents, mostly engaged in stock and wool. To say that Silver Lake was an isolated community would be an understatement. Located about 90 miles south and east of Prineville, the nearest telegraph office was 150 miles away. The outpost was dependent on supplies that were carted by freight teams from the Dalles. The trip was about 400 miles and took a week to complete and could not be conducted in the winter due to treacherous, snowy passes. Out of necessity, Silver Lake was a self-reliant community. Within Silver Lake was a general store called Chrisman Brothers. In a town of about a dozen buildings, it was the most pretentious of the small, small lot. About 50 feet long, the two-story building had windows at the front to display the wares and allow in a little sunlight. A small post office was inside the building, as was a large hall on the second floor, a gathering place of the village's larger social activities. The hall was reached by an attached stairway on the back of the building. The door at the top of the stairway was the only way in or out of the hall. The large room had benches for the functions as well as a little stage. There were two windows at the front of the hall, looking down onto the street below. Out in the country about this time of year, everybody's happy Christmas time is here. Little children playing, running to and fro, Santa Claus coming, riding on the snow. I remember years ago when just a lad at home How long for Christmas time nothing could go wrong Nowadays I look back seem like just a year Christmas Going Eve, 1894, found a Christmas tree festival on the second floor of Chrisman Brothers. Ranchers and their families had traveled for many miles to attend the festivities. Entertainments were few and far between in this section of Oregon, and the Silver Lake Yuletide celebration was not to be missed. It is certain that over 100 people were tightly packed into the warm, bright, but tiny hall. Some said it was 200. Benches lined the room, and the commemoration was so crammed with attendees that they had to clamor over one another to get to their seats. What a joyous celebration was attended by the citizens and neighbors of Silver Lake. Festoons hung around the room and fir boughs banked the walls. The Christmas tree dominated the center of the room. Children scurried about, laughing and squealing, and adults exchanged pleasant holiday greetings. A literary reading was conducted. A dance was to occupy the guests a little later in the evening. But for now, the holiday cheer focused on the picturesque Christmas tree. Evergreen boughs decorating homes around the solstice have long been a symbol of life returning after the dark, cold winter. 
Northern European pagan traditions likely influenced 16th century German Christians who began bringing trees into their homes for Christmas. It is thought that Protestant reformer Martin Luther was the first to decorate a Christmas tree with lighted candles. But on that Christmas Eve in 1894, the branches and boughs, the candles and lanterns, would not bring back life. Rather, they would take it away. When the festivities were at their height, and presents from under the tree were to be distributed to the laughing children, one of the attendees stood up on one of the benches to get a better view. In doing so, the gentleman, named George Payne, upset an oil lamp that was hanging from the ceiling. The lamp was a Rochester brand and contained over a gallon of coal oil. One version of the story has the lamp sputtering and spitting flaming oil, being carried from the center of the crowd and toward the only exit. Another version has the lamp falling and, as it fell, spilling its supply of oil across the wooden floor. Whatever the specific cause, the result was the same. The lamp had been upturned and its contents had been upset. The Silver Lake Christmas Tree Festival was in flame. had attempted to kick the lamp out of the sole exit door in the hall, but the kick was unsuccessful. Instead, the flipping lamp created a wall of flame as it tumbled across the floor, a wall of flame that separated the citizens from the door. One attendee bellowed, Shut the door and keep quiet. It can be put out. But it couldn't be put out. There was a brief pause, and complete stillness fell over the hall. A solitary moment, where someone could have jumped through the flame and towards the door, inciting others to follow. Perhaps disaster could have been averted. One young woman seemed to consider this action when she was seen approaching the flames, but her suggestion was quickly discouraged as a tongue of flame reached out and caught her dress. The wall of flames quickly shot up. Within two minutes, the hall was encased in the blaze. Warren Duncan describes the scene inside. I jumped to my feet and I looked for my wife and little boy. They were about 15 feet from the door. Knowing from the jam behind them that I could never reach them and feeling sure that they would get out that way, I turned around and broke out one of the front windows and spoke to some ladies that were standing on the stage to come that way. I threw myself out onto the porch and pulled them out. I, I think I must have helped out about 15 persons, big and little. One man came through the window when I heard my wife scream on the inside. For God's sake. Pull me out! I'm burning up! I reached my arms and body through the window and got hold of her. The smoke coming out of the window at the time. Just then, 
The porch gave way and we fell to the sidewalk. With the portico fallen away, a ladder was put against the side of the building under the windows and a few individuals gained egress from the action. Eventually, the trapped jumped from the two windows on the second floor at about a height of 15 feet. 16 people were injured from this escape, with some of the jumps thought to result in fatal injuries. It was as if fate had mandated that there was to be no escaping unscathed from the inferno. A little girl at a disadvantage from her stature was pulled or fell down by the crowd and was trodden upon. Her mother cried, for God's sake, don't trample on my child. And bending to lift her was herself forced down by the crowd, others stumbling over them. And the flames from the oily floor enveloped all who fell. Many, many of the victims were trampled to death. Others did not make it out of the blaze. Some trapped in the flames, having, as the papers put it, lost their presence of mind, ran about the room aimlessly. Two sisters, Mrs. Owlsley and Mrs. Snelling, were last seen kneeling side by side, praying fervently. Having bolted from the blades, three men ran back into the burning building to find family members who were not outside. They were never seen again. One of them, Clay Martin, came outside with another family's child in his arms that he had rescued from the inferno. He saw that his wife was not out in the snow, so he attempted to go back into the dance hall. Several people tried to stop him, but he screamed, I'm going to save Becky. Clay ran back into the flames with the child he had rescued still in his arms. The flames and smoke were described as curling up through the roof in one giant column that reached high into the night sky and was seen for miles. The male messenger, who had left Silver Lake earlier in the day, heard an explosion from the fire about 20 miles away. Those closer to the inferno could hear the screams and groans of those trapped inside as they were consumed by the fire. As one would expect from a resilient Oregon community, tales of heroism prevailed. 
One man who tried to rescue a little girl whose clothing was on fire and who undoubtedly would have been trampled upon in another moment hurriedly went to her assistance, picked her up, and held her to his shoulder, at the same time with his bare hands trying to smother the fire which was rapidly consuming her garments, the flame from which all the while lapped his head and face. Another witness's account described the condition inside the fire. Now and then, for an instant, when the thought of self or the help of others was not uppermost, some expressions or face would catch your eye and leave its expression in your memory forever. And many a face was the expression of terror mingled with pain and fear. On top, trying to crawl over those erect, could be seen some with eyes protruding. One such sight leaves you with a memory never to be forgotten. The expression of those eyes said plainer than any words, and said nothing else but, Life, life, I must have life. Very quickly indeed, too quickly, there was no escape from the Holocaust. Warren Duncan describes what happened shortly after his fall from the portico. I left my wife and ran around the house to the stairway. When I got there, I saw that all hope of getting anyone out of the door was gone as the blaze was coming out of the door 20 feet. With the windows now being the only exit, those scrambling for the two open holes grew more frantic. But then, without warning, the growing flames burst out the open windows and the entire building was enveloped by the inferno. Now, there was no escape. The onlookers were forced to stand outside the building in the deep, cold snow to watch and listen as their trapped friends and family burned to death. Within six minutes, six minutes, the fire had consumed the building and all left inside. Forty-two people succumbed in the Silver Lake fire. Others died later from their massive, horrific burns. Nearly half of the fatalities were children. Many who hadn't died were injured some losing their eyes or their hands. In the list of the dead can be found whole family groupings, mother and children, husbands, wives and babies. Entire families were lost. A horrific disaster on Christmas Eve. The fire had a serious effect on the vitality of this little Oregon community. One noted that the blaze was leaving in the whole village hardly enough sound persons to bury the dead and care for the injured. Eventually, enough help was gathered to dig a common grave for the charred corpses of this horrible Oregon disaster.
Most of the bodies were indistinguishable from the other ashes from the blaze. There was nothing to identify the victims with, so the few charred bones that remained were gathered up and placed in a mass grave. Fires happen throughout the West. In the westward expansion, manifest destiny, right? Bricks were heavy and expensive to transport. Wood was often available and much easier to get from point A to point B. Little towns of wooden buildings dotting the path to the Pacific and very common causes of community calamitous conflagrations. Portland, of course, had several, with the Great Fire of 1873, which we featured in a previous Kick-Ass Oregon History podcast, being the grand doozy of them all. San Francisco suffered six vast fires in her first three years of being. Astoria burned to the ground in 1883. Spokane had a massive fire in 1889 that destroyed most of their downtown. Not to sound too cheesy, but big old fires were kind of a, a fabric of the West, something that new, small cities had to overcome, a far too common experience of settlers. The Silver Lake story has so many interesting ingredients to it. First of all, just being so damn sardonic to have been the result of a Christmas celebration. It's like a sick joke by God on his son's birthday, if you believe in that monotheistic business. But on other levels, it shows how slow communication was in the era, taking days for the news of the Holocaust to reach media outlets. A full week after the disaster, the Oregonian lamented that there had been no real news from the isolated locale, with the exception of updating the death toll since the initial horrific report. Now, we hear of a shopping mall shooting within seconds of the first shots being fired. But legacy comes to mind, too. Period reports describe the Christmas Eve fire at Silver Lake to be the most terrible scene ever witnessed on this side of the globe. It also said that it would be long remembered as one of the worst happenings in history. Normally, one would want perhaps a little bit of time to interpret the event before such sweeping analysis is imposed, and looking at the reading of the event, it is kind of true, but also not true. The case of the poisoned eggs at the Oregon State Hospital in 1942 would, of course, rival the Christmas Eve fire in that category of Oregon worstness, if such a horrific contest were to be held. But in another way, this analysis is totally wrong because many Oregonians have never heard of this fire. In some ways, it has been swept away from the history books. And that is a goddamn shame. And while we certainly hope we don't harsh your holiday mellow, man, on the other hand, let's keep it fucking real. On this 120th anniversary, on this day of this horrible, tragic fire, let us remember a thriving Oregon frontier community and the sacrifices that they gave to help create the wonderful Beaver State with such a rich and varied history that we know and love today. Thank you, Silver Lake. And Merry Christmas, ass kickers. It's Christmas time, and there's no need to be afraid. At Christmas time, we let in light and we banish shade. And in our world of plenty, we can spread a smile of 
Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers. And be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-Ass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more Kick-Ass Oregon History in your life? Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at ORHistory.com. Just... Don't get too close to Mr. Kink Crispin. Merry Christmas, ass kickers. Merry Christmas, ass kickers. Happy Merry Hanukkah. Christmas, ass kickers. Merry and happy Christmas. Hanukkah too, baby. Merry Christmas, ass kickers. May you have a joyous Merry Christmas, ass kickers. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas from us from Doug and Andy. Oregon history. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas from Doug and Andy. From Doug and Andy. Oregon history. And Oregon happy history. Hanukkah too, baby. Christmas dreams come true. Merry Christmas. Yeah, just stay away from him. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. starving folk on our planet than ever before. Please give a thought for them this season and do whatever you can, however small, to help them live. Have a peaceful new year. This record was recorded on the 25th of November 1984 
It's now 8am on the morning of the 26th. We've been here 24 hours and I think it's time we went home. So from me, Bob Geldof and Midge, we'd say good morning to you all and a million thanks to everyone on the record. Have a lovely Christmas. Bye. orhistory.com